Welcome to Black Sheep by BBH. I'm your host, writer and performer, Daniela Isaacs. This podcast celebrates those that don't follow the flock. Across the series, I'll be having conversations with some of the world's most notorious black sheep. We'll hear their stories told through the rules they've broken. Black Sheep is a podcast about rules and how to break them. Our black sheep this week proves that a Facebook post has the power to totally change many people's lives. Back in 2015, Jazz O'Hara worked in the fashion industry, living in southeast London. She'd set up a very successful life for herself. When her parents completed the lengthy process to adopt a child, Jazz's worldview was thrown into question. Her new brother, Mez, had come via the refugee camp in Calais known as The Jungle. The information that Jazz had read about migrants from the camps was negative, dehumanising and, frankly, racist. Rather than relying on second-hand information, she decided to head out to the jungle. She came home and wrote a Facebook post about her time there and the people that she'd met. Overnight, it was shared 65,000 times. £250,000 raised and eight storage units later, Jazz and her brother decided to leave their jobs and set up the Worldwide Tribe. The Worldwide Tribe produces creative content to bring a human perspective to the biggest humanitarian crisis of our time, the refugee crisis. On their trips to the jungle, Jazz and her brother quickly realised internet access was a key concern there, so they took it into their own hands. Teaming up with a fabricator and a PhD student, they set up Jangala, making portable Wi-Fi systems which they then distributed in the camps. Alongside all of this, she now hosts a podcast interviewing refugees and people dedicated to the crisis from across the world. Hello, Jazz. Hello. Thank you for joining us today. (laughs) As you know, the title of this podcast is called Black Sheep. I normally kickstart it off by asking our guest, do you think of yourself as a black sheep? Very good question. And I've never thought of myself as a black sheep before, I don't think. I guess black sheep or being a black sheep to me makes me think of being different from the rest right or kind of going in a different direction from everyone around you Mm, going against the grain yeah exactly exactly and um I like to think of all of us as more kind of multi-color multi-colored sheep because the worldwide tribe has always been about embracing differences and all of our differences and how we're all unique and we all have beautiful things to offer so yeah I think I would see it more like that that we're all different, um, but yeah, there's not kind of one load of white and one black. Do you think that you used to be more conforming then? Yeah, I think I definitely had more of a conforming life before I did this, um, or more of a classic. Like I went, I did my, you know, my my studies, and I went to uni, and then I got a job, and I lived in London, and all of that was more. Um, I guess, traditional in a sense of um, what was success or successful. So, yeah, yeah, I guess it was more um, of a, I don't know if conservative is the right word. I was never, don't think I was ever conservative, but yeah, more conforming um, to your average lifestyle. Mm, And do you think we're encouraged to conform, to be white sheep? Yeah, I think the school I went to um, definitely really encouraged kind of academic um, achievements more than kind of creative um pathways um so my experience would I would say yeah probably I was ticking those boxes of kind of getting good grades and going to university um but I've come to realize later in life quite a lot later that that's not actually what works best for me Mm. okay I want to hear how you went from trying to be a white sheep to embracing the colourful sheep that you are. Um, So why don't you kick us off and tell me the first rule that you have broken? Don't put your address online. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I learned that the hard way. Um, Yeah, I guess you're kind of always told that, aren't you, by your parents or whatever I often give talks in schools and I always say like this is why your teachers might say to you like don't put your personal information online there is a bit of a story behind this um, which you touched upon in the intro but yeah basically what happened was I went to the camp in Calais 
to the jungle um, back in 2015. And what made you go there? Good question. And again, that's another whole story in itself. So my mum and dad were going through the process of adoption. It was actually fostering at the time. They were going through this process um, of fostering another child because my youngest biological brother had just turned 18 and they had this empty nest syndrome. They were worried that, you know, they'd had four kids, they'd always had a house full. And I think they were scared of having an empty house and no kids around. So they had been going through this process for a while. Actually, it took nine months um, kind of, yeah, after they'd done the first screenings and tests and stuff. Um, And it's a really beautiful story because it took my brother nine months to get from Eritrea to England. So there was kind of these two parallel journeys happening alongside each other and kind of like a pregnancy in a weird way as well. The way that my mum was getting ready to like take on this new child. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so basically my mum and dad have been going through this process. I knew that I would be having a new brother or sister soon. And as you go through the process, you're asked a lot of questions as to what you're open to. Right. So um, my mum and dad were open to having an older child, um, a child that didn't speak English, um, a a boy. Um, Those are things that, you know, it looked quite likely that that would be the case because they're not necessarily things that many families, adoptive or foster families are looking for. And my parents live in Kent. Uh, There were lots of children at the time arriving to Kent um, via the Calais jungle. So crossing to Dover or to Folkestone um, in the back of lorries or hiding in, yeah, however they were kind of coming across. Um, But lots of unaccompanied minors arriving to Kent. Um, So, yeah, it looked very, very likely that that would be the case for my new sibling. It was actually before he arrived that I first went to Calais. Um, because I I had all these questions about where he might have come from and what might have happened to him and why he lived in this camp and why he left his country and what country he was from and all of these things I wasn't really finding the answers to as I was kind of researching and looking in the media. Um, So, yeah, I decided to find out for myself. And as a family, as you were growing up, what was the discussions like around the refugee crisis, um, in general? Was it discussed? Are you from a liberal family? I I would say I'm from a liberal family. My mum's Dutch and she's very open and liberal about lots of things growing up. She was more so than a lot of my friends' um, parents. We always used to put that down to like, oh, she's Dutch. Mm. Maybe it was just her and her personality as well. But we hadn't really ever discussed the refugee crisis. I didn't really know anything about refugees or asylum or immigration as a whole at all. It was very much outside of my area of of knowledge and and understanding. Um, So I would say it's not something that we'd ever really given much thought to. And it wasn't really until 2015 that it was kind of all over our newspapers and our media as well. I know it's hard to kind of think back to that time now, but it was really then, about five years ago, that it really hit our... Headlines. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it was from that that you decided to go there I mean already there's a part of me that's like that's quite that's incredibly innovative of you to go there before it was really in the papers right yeah or stupid I don't know I was naive definitely I mean I filled my car with stuff that I thought that people might want and need but actually had no idea and it was just kind of warm clothing and um I think I had like some food that I borrowed my friend's like booker card who had my friend who Run, works in a restaurant and went and got some like like packs of nuts in bulk I don't know it was did you know anyone no else that was there <laughs> no. so, and you didn't know anyone that had been before you no there was no volunteers working on the ground at the time but the first time that I went I didn't meet any English volunteers I met one French lady Maya who is still a hero of mine who was a local to Calais and had been working with refugees in the area for a long time um, but yeah there was it was before the kind of grassroots movement of people supporting the camp and volunteering in the camp so that it didn't really exist at the time so how did you even know where to go I mean it was it was hard to miss it so I did some research, um, but again, that was difficult. I, you couldn't really find out, you know, from the newspapers or even online where it was. But um, I had re- read that as you come off the Eurotunnel, it's there, basically. Um, and it's true that at the time when you came off the Eurotunnel, you could literally see it. It was like 3,000 people living in tents by the side of the motorway. Uh, so it's quite visible for people crossing. So, yeah, I just I just 
went to where the tents were. <laughs> and at the time, you had this job in fashion. You, you know, as you said, you'd gone through quite an academic schooling. Mm-hmm. What was it that was making you, within you, go? It was a curiosity. That was, re- was really the... Um, the driving force that I I didn't I wasn't getting what I needed from what I was reading in the media and I wanted a more human perspective and I was curious was really interested from a personal perspective because of my little brother but also as a whole like why was this happening and why did people have so much fear around it because you know surely these were just people and I remember my mum telling me this story that she'd heard the women two women in the bank in front of her she was in the queue um at the bank and there was two women in front of her talking about Calais and they were saying like, oh yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? Like everyone's running around with knives and it's really dangerous. And I just felt like that can't be, that can't be the case. Like it doesn't make sense. But um, yeah, I didn't really have the the knowledge to, to challenge that mm. rhetoric at the time. And what were your parents or your family's response to you heading there for the first time? I think they're kind of used to me um by then so they know that when I've got something in my head that there's no stopping me and as I say like they have always been supportive and they are quite open so they were very supportive about about going um that I've traveled I'd had traveled a lot previously to that but more in like a backpacker vibe and yeah yeah, they learned not to worry about me I think so did you go on your own I, no, I went with um, a kind of random group of, I think there was three of us, my brother, um, my old boss. <laughs> yeah, just anyone who kind of wanted to come at that on the first trip. And then there was lots and lots of trips after that. But yeah, I went with a couple of people. Um, and talk me through what <clears throat> that first kind of venture there was like. Yeah, I mean, it was changed my life, that first trip. It really did. I'll never forget it because... We arrived and the circumstances were pretty shocking. The conditions, you know, that people were literally just kind of making do with what was there. And there was very little there. Not everybody had a tent. Um, It was muddy and cold. And I mean, Calais, I don't know why, but it always seems to be, even in the summer, it's cold. I think it's because it's by the sea that it's like always windy. And yeah, it always seems to be a few degrees, if not more, colder than London. Um, so people were just living in 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 tents in the mud basically and that was shocking but what happened straight away was that as we parked the car uh this afghan guy um came up to us and he was like oh you look like you haven't been here before <laughs> i was like yeah i haven't and he was like oh let me show you my tent and he gave us a little tour of the area and the camp and actually it was amazing because already people were kind of forming there was a, an Eritrean area and a Sudanese area and an area of more Afghans and there was rhyme and reason to the place. There was a mosque, there was a church. Um, Sorry, what do you mean? How did they make the mosque and how did they make <laughs> yeah, the church? Yeah, I mean, when I say mosque and a church, very makeshift. But yeah, with pieces, I guess that was the first thing that people um, focused on actually putting resources into when they got there. So the church was just built from the wood that they had and the tarpaulin that they had. Um, yeah, it was pretty beautiful, actually. I think there was a, um, a mat, like a, you know, what's it called when you wipe your feet on a, like a doormat? Mm in the front of the church and it had Winnie the Pooh on it. <laughs> so you wiped your feet on Winnie the Pooh before you went in uh, into the church. But yeah, I think they just made it from like any donations or things that they could find really. And there was candles inside and on Sundays there would be a really beautiful service there. It was amazing. And how long did you stay on that first trip? That first trip I stayed, I was there for one day. It was so easy and accessible and close to get there that, yeah, we went in the morning, first thing in the morning. We're there within like an hour or so and then, yeah, because from where my mum and dad live in Kent, it's not far. And then we came back late that night. And yeah, that day I spent the whole day meeting people um, from all over the world, from places that I'd never even heard of and hearing stories that I never thought that I'd hear firsthand. Um, Really. Like what? I mean, okay, let me, uh, well, I met a Sudanese guy that day and his story will stay with me. I mean, forever we sat in his in his tent and he told me um about the genocide in Darfur from where he was from and he told me what happened to his family that his village had been burnt by the Janjaweed um yeah horrible horrible stories and then this journey that he had made to get to Calais again 
crazy crossing the Mediterranean and crossing the Sahara Desert and and walking across Europe and yeah just these stories that you think like this can't be real this you this is heroic and it should never be perceived as anything other than heroic right um but yeah he told me this story and I remember him being open and yeah being emotion openly emotional and then asking me so what do people in the UK think about us and and the Darfuri people and what's happening in Darfur and I it I couldn't tell him like do you know what I don't think people really know yeah. I mean I, it felt really difficult to say that to him but yeah it really sh- shocked me that day I guess that like all of these things were happening and all of these people were there and it was really on our doorstep like as I say it was not hard to get there and not hard to find yeah and uh, so I felt very strange also coming back that day in the comfort of my car, you know, like leaving the camp and being like, yeah, we're going back to England now, uh, easily with our passports. And yeah, these people were risking their lives on a daily basis to do that same journey. And it, it just did not make sense to me. Like, why? And how did you deal with that, getting home? So I got home that day and I uh, felt very compelled to share some of these stories that I'd heard. I really wanted people to know about, for example, this this Sudanese guy and what he'd told me. And um, I also met people that day who who were saying that, you know, they're cold at night and they were hungry during the day. They needed just basic human needs covered. So I also felt very sure that I'd be going to the camp again and that there was something that I could do to kind of fill some of those like basic needs. So I wrote that post on Facebook um, just to my friends and family just thinking like okay you guys like I'm sure between us we've got some old jumpers that we're not wearing or like old camping stuff that we don't need and yeah I thought it would just be them that would be reading it so this goes back to my rule (laughs) I made this post and I said this is my brother's address in Brixton this is my mum and dad's address in Kent if anyone's got anything just drop it off or like post it to us or whatever yeah and then the next day I woke up to go to my job in London and did what I do first thing I do in the morning or that a lot of us do, looked at my phone, got the shock of my life. <laughs> it was like, what the fuck? How has that happened? Um, yeah, I was not expecting the response that that post got at all. It was very, very um, overwhelming. So it was 65,000 people shared it. Yeah, within like hours, like whilst I was sleeping. <laughs> <It wasn't that. laughs> And as a consequence of that, what arrived at your door? (laughs) My poor brother, his housemate literally had to move out of her house because just for the temporarily, because their living room was like full of donations and my mum and dad's house. Yeah, they were not happy with me. I quickly removed those addresses and we actually started to, you know, get warehouses in London. But basically we were inundated with Amazon delivery after Amazon delivery of like brand new tents and sleeping bags and people turning up to the door like crying with care packages that they put together or like jumpers that they'd like pinned notes of support to it was amazing like the way that people responded was just yeah it was amazing to see and you know not just that that like we had these donation days where everybody would come to the um to the warehouses in London and they would be able to like drop off their donations but like someone came with a bloody articulated lorry full of donations because Facebook and Instagram had enabled people to coordinate within their own community and be like right I live in you know Leeds and I'm having a donation day and people were kind of organizing then and then they would come down with like loads of people's worth of donations to our donation day and then suddenly we had like tons and tons and tons of stuff (laughs) and at this point you're still working in your day job yeah yeah I mean that didn't actually last very much longer than that because I was very overwhelmed so and will you just kind of expand on that feeling of being overwhelmed I, I just wonder suddenly being back in the context of the kind of nine to five mentality surrounded by people that probably at that time aren't aware of the refugee crisis Mm. how did that make you feel and how did you deal with those people I was desperate for those hours back like every day you know I was designing underwear (laughs) and I was like I can't I can't do this when I know that this this thing is happening on our 
on our doorstep, as I said, it's unfolding this crisis and like thousands of people and more arriving. And yeah, I, I was going home desperate for those hours back, not really sleeping for the first few months. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, a mad time. Me and my brother moved back home to my mum and dad's house, which was really ironic because they just um, got to the end of their <laughs> process to take on another child because they'd have no kids at home. And then we all moved back home, <laughs> back home to be closer to Calais and to not be paying rent in London and to really like give a go, give this idea of doing what we could for Calais. A, a proper go so yeah we both quit our jobs my brother worked in advertising at the time um he was a creative and yeah we both moved back home started doing this full time um yeah spending our time between my mum and dad's house and and Calais and how often would you go to Calais a lot a lot um we were probably in Calais more than we weren't for the first few months at least if not the first year and then it was about a year and a half later that the whole camp was demolished and then we started to spend less time there and more time in places like Greece and, uh, yeah, further afield. We started to work in Turkey and in Jordan, but, yeah, that comes later. That's a, <laughs> that's a whole other story. But, yeah, I mean, in Calais at the beginning, we were there a lot. It was very all-consuming. Jazz, will you throw us straight into your second rule that you've broken and then we can carry on with the Worldwide Tribe journey? Yes, the second rule is don't break the law. <laughs> uh, this is my, am I allowed to say this? This is one of my favourite broken rules. Of course we needed a lawbreaker on here. Um, you must have had some lawbreakers before. We have, but they've never been as so overt as to say they've broken the law. I know, I'm naughty, maybe I shouldn't, this is going to get me in trouble. But basically, I mean, it's not a secret, but uh, it was a couple of years later, after the beginning of, uh, yeah, that whole crazy um growth organic growth of the worldwide tribe um and we started working further afield so not long after we'd started working in Calais um we sent a team to Greece of volunteers um and they were working in Lesvos and they were working in search and rescue on the beaches there it was not long after the pictures of Alan Kurdi had come out in the news I think he was three at the time, the little Syrian boy that washed up on the beaches of Turkey. And it really changed a lot of people's perspective. For me, I saw the general narrative shift in the UK um, about the refugee crisis. Before that, it had been very much marauding migrants and swarms of migrants and that kind of wording. And I think his picture, it changed that rhetoric to people seeing the desperation seeing that there was no other choice seeing that people were only leaving because they had to so we saw a big shift in support for our work before that on social media you know we'd get a lot of amazing support as we've talked about but also a lot of anti-immigration sentiment um which slowly dissipated after and yeah I mean it it changes with the the tides of the media um but yeah after those pictures things changed a lot and we will come back to the story about you breaking the yes. law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> why do you think there is that rhetoric? Why, why do you think that exists in terms of the prejudice that people feel about the refugees or the refugee crisis? I think it comes down to if you pick, um, unpick all the layers of conditioning and stories that we've been told through our lifetime, it comes back to a fear of the other and a fear of the unknown and a fear of what you have built or what we have changing. Um, and I try and be as compassionate and understanding for that as possible because when I come across people that do have a difference of opinion about immigration, then it's really good for me to get into that mindset and understand. And underneath all of that, it comes from an insecurity or a fear of, yeah, of, of losing what you have or things changing. And how do you think that that narrative has been formed? I think our media hasn't helped. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I think that it's that's definitely played a big part especially, um, yeah, during these last few years of things changing and Europe seeing a much bigger influx of people. I think that the media has played a big role in kind of... Um, Fear-mongering. Fear. Mm -hmm. There was uh, that woman on Question Time that hit the headlines yeah. that was saying such kind of prejudice rhetoric. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do we unpick that for her? 
I think, well, one of the things that I've learned is that no one can be shamed into agreeing with you, right? So one of the things that doesn't work is kind of making someone feel stupid or proving them to be wrong, <clears throat> like with facts or... But I mean, that is one way of kind of talking her through the facts and her facts were very wrong. Um, but I think really what we've got to do is is listen to people like that. Really, really listen. Give them the time and the space to be like, OK, give it to me. Why do you think that? Why do you feel that way? And then... <clears throat> I, I I really think all we can do is kind of affect change by leading by example and just maybe show another way um, without kind of trying to put it onto people too much, you know? And what is that other way? That other way is the worldwide tribe mentality, I guess, which is being open and embracing those differences. And for me, that curiosity and that questioning nature has brought me to places that I never thought I'd go people that I never thought I'd meet and also my little brother and three more little brothers after that which I can talk about later but yeah I mean it's brought me more benefits than I could ever have imagined and I guess just talking about that hopefully is encouraging to yeah I mean it's a difficult thing to change people's minds or opinions right and that's not really what I'm hoping to do I'm just hoping to share stories and amplify voices to really um, raise awareness and then people can kind of make an informed decision themselves and do you think our system is preventing change and what I mean by our system is the government mm. yeah I do I do um, but I work on a very kind of human level. So I work in a very grassroots kind of uh, on social media, sharing these stories with the community. Um, and I do think that social media is an amazing way of get, providing an alternative to the mainstream media, right? Um, in good and bad ways. Um, but it's it's a great alternative and a great way to actually get these stories out there from a grassroots perspective. Um so yeah, I do think our system as it is now being kind of top down, it can be difficult to have your voice heard when you're kind of going bottom up, but we'll keep trying. Well, the way you've managed to do that is with this second broken rule by yes. just breaking the law and going against the system. Yeah, I haven't even so told that story. Yeah, I want to hear about that. So it was in Greece, It was right? in Greece a couple of years later and we'd been working in this camp um, actually about an hour outside of Athens. It was on mainland Greece. Uh, for a week um, and we had a kind of community centre that we were supporting um, just outside of the camp um, where refugees in the camp could come and um, there was lessons, English lessons, lessons for the kids. There was kind of like a school and some food and a safe place. Um, anyway, so we got to know quite a lot of the people in this camp quite well um, and we were about to leave actually. So we were leaving Greece we were coming back home um, and I was with two of my little brothers so one of them that we've talked about the creative and advertising he's gone on to uh, work in in the wi-fi for the wi-fi project and he's still um, very involved in the refugee crisis supporting refugees with wi-fi uh, or in emergency situations um, and again we can talk about that in more detail but I was with him and I was with my other brother who's a filmmaker and we've been filming some content God, so you've got such a cool I know, family. So many, so many siblings. It's confusing, but <laughs> basically, I say this because my mum had three kids out in Greece. Yeah, and as we were leaving, we went into the camp, um, which was a military-run camp, just to say goodbye to some people. So we weren't filming anything. We knew that we're not allowed to like film within the camp. There was quite a lot of rules, and we weren't really supposed to be in the camp at all. But when we were in there saying goodbye, we had our uh, my my brother had a backpack with all his camera equipment on him. And we just got a bit blasé by this point. And we were like, oh, yeah, we'll just go and say goodbye. And it was freezing cold. We were like huddled around a fire and just like saying to these people that we'd met that we'd be back and et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, suddenly the police come around the corner into this like it was in an old um, chicken um, factory. Like the, everyone was like sleeping in these. Mm. It was pretty horrible, but like in these, yeah, horrible buildings without roofs and um, so the police come in and they were like you're coming with us and we were like oh, okay yeah yeah no worries we're leaving now anyway um, 
But then they were like, no, you're coming with us, get in the car. Um, and basically we realised like, oh shit, they're quite serious about this. Um, and then they realised that my brother had this camera equipment in his bag and they were not happy about that so yeah basically we got arrested for being in this camp we missed our flight home we called our mum like um all three of us <laughs> all three of us are in a police station in um, Greece right now um but yeah basically it was illegal at the time to actually be s some of the camps that were military run they didn't want volunteers in them we'd been distributing food and stuff in there and yeah there was a lot of rules and regulations about that and there still is you know in in Calais for example um you know there's no you're, you, you're not allowed to actually set up any kind of um official or not it's not official but like you can't really set up a tent anywhere in Calais now that's visible or obvious because police are, are clearing any signs of people living there right um so yeah there's a lot of laws and um that are being put into place around the influx of people arriving that to me are very inhumane and I've seen it over the years um and even you know the term illegal immigrant and referring to people as illegal um for me yeah they're laws or legalities that are not actually yeah hum human thinking about the humans mm. behind um those regulations and I guess on a day-to-day -day level that's not something that we would kind of pull into question right like we would just assume the law is right mm -hmm. whereas what you've so clearly shown is that actually sometimes it's very wrong yeah or there is no legal way of doing things that need to be done <clears throat> so for example there's no legal way of people uh, crossing from Calais to the UK um, and if there was, it would stop people from making that journey illegally. So, for example, my little brother, Mez, that you spoke about, um, he was my first um, foster brother. He's Eritrean and he was 14 when he came to England. He had a crazy or has a crazy journey. Um, he was fleeing compulsory military service in Eritrea and then crossed the Sahara um it took him like 15 days of no food it's a mad journey as a kid on his own um but basically his brother is now in the same situation in a refugee camp in Ethiopia he's crossed the border from also Eritrea. trying not to get trying into military not, exactly service. exactly also fleeing military service and there's no legal way for them to be reunited so he has to do the same crossing borders illegally facing border controls and uh, yeah and worse basically to get to the UK um, people smugglers and people traffickers rather than there being an application process for Mez to be like this is my little brother and he needs to be with me in mm. England um, yeah there's no other option when you were face to face with the police in Greece were you able to try and kind of put this to them yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes I think like how can you go home at night and sleep and this is not this is not every police officer in Greece or in France by any means but yeah I've definitely come across some that I think like how can you implement these rules when you have these families in front of you right and these kids and yeah sometimes there's no talking to them it's like when you get turned away from a bouncer in a club and they're like once what I've said what I've said goes and there's no arguing with me <laughs> yeah and how do you think they do justify it psychologically uh, yeah I, I don't know I don't know I wish I understood that. You know, I just, on um, one of our recent podcast episodes, I uh, interviewed Lord Alf Dubs, who, for anyone who doesn't know, is my absolute hero, and you should all find out who he is, because he's amazing. And listen um, to the episode. And it's listen a brilliant to the episode. episode. Yes. Um, so he was a child refugee himself in the Second World War. He came over as part of kinder transport in 1939. He was a Jewish child living in Prague. He was welcomed by the UK. Um, but anyway, since then, he's now well into his 80s. He became a lord and has been fighting for the rights of child refugees ever since, to this date. And I asked him that same question that you asked me, right? Because it's just after um, a, a rule had been passed against supporting child refugees, which has happened quite recently. So the, the bid to actually have reunification and to bring child refugees to the UK legally was thrown out of the EU withdrawal bill. And I asked Lord Alfdubs, 
why? Why are these people in parliament making these decisions? Like, can you understand that? And yeah, he just he answered the same. He was like, I wish I knew. I don't know that. I, I don't know the answer. And yeah, I don't understand that either. It's very far from what I could ever, it's ever feel like deep in our heart and in everything within you you know what is right and what feels good and what is wrong and what doesn't feel good right and surely these decisions feel wrong Mm, I was gonna say is it ignorance you know ignorance is bliss but the, the you know the police that are facing these people every day they can't be ignorant because they're in front of them (laughs) you know what I mean they know it seeing it yeah but I think it's the stories that we tell ourselves it's like in the second world war how um there were stories and propaganda that made people think in ways that you know in hindsight we look back and we think how did people think that but yeah I don't know I don't know I guess we are built on a series of stories um and and that's what brings us to we're a product of of those stories and our environment and the input from our parents and our surroundings, right? Yeah, and thinking about that and connecting it to this broken rule of breaking the law, (laughs) which I will love forever. um, I just wonder, and I, I guess I'm thinking about Extinction Rebellion a bit here as well, there's a sense of privilege that comes with being able to break the law. Like, you knew that you were able to call your parents Mm -hmm. and say, I'm in prison, and they would probably be kind of okay or not even that but maybe even more supportive with that so I guess something that might be worth us exploring is this idea of privilege and um, how that connects with perhaps being and you can disagree with me here but being able to be more socially responsible absolutely and I recognize that so much that having a British passport made me know that in that situation not just did I have my parents support behind me but I had my country's support behind me really right if something happens to you in another country then you kind of as a Brit have this idea that like you know someone's going to come and look after you or something will someone will have your back and that's an intrinsic kind of um mentality like a almost kind of like a I don't know if it's like a self-righteousness I don't know if that's the right word but do you know what I mean mm. this feeling of um it's going to be okay it's going to be okay because I've got a British passport and that's powerful and yeah I recognize that privilege in a massive way and I, I do not take it lightly and I think that is a massive part of why I'm doing what I'm doing is because I feel like anyone who has that privilege also has a responsibility to use it and I wonder if um kind of charity in general is seen perhaps in our kind of um, what's the word? Well, in a capitalist society, as being an additional to your purpose in life, and I feel like you've kind of totally disrupted that. It's become your purpose. Does that make any yeah, sense? Yeah, for sure. It shouldn't be an additional. It's the same in business, right? It shouldn't be like, oh, and we need to give a certain amount to charity. It needs to be intrinsic into like everything that we're doing every single day. It shouldn't be about like, oh yeah, and like I need to give back. It's about actually applying this mindset into your every single interaction and day being kind listening to people you know it could be the person next to you on the bus it could be your next door neighbor it could be the local animal shelter I don't know whatever but everyone has that uh, that those people around them every day that you might just need a listening ear or some time or like the most valuable thing we have really is is time but some people might say I don't have time, I don't have the paycheck, I don't have any of that to be able to give myself space for myself, let alone anyone else. What would you respond to that? I would say that every one of us has something to give, right? And whatever that might be, then yeah, it's difficult for me to tell you what that is. Um, But if it's not money, if it's not stuff, um, if it's not going away to the other side of the world because maybe you've got kids or you can't go and put up tents in Calais or whatever um, then maybe it is time um, to have a a phone call with somebody every week or you know there's ways in London that you can um, spend some time speaking to a refugee and teaching them English or yeah there is always something that you've got to give and it could look different it looks different for everybody you know and the thing that I remember so much I'm the person that I remember from Calais or a person that I remember is a lady who came out as a volunteer she was an older lady 
And she came with a foot spa, you know, one of those like personal <laughs> little foot spas that you get for like Christmas sometimes. Yeah. And she literally just wash, went round the camp washing people's feet. And to me, it was really beautiful because it was like, you don't need to have all of the like skills. You just need to have the, that was her thing. That was her gift. That was what she had to give. And yeah, I think that all of us have some something to offer in this world. And if you don't have time or you don't have the paycheck or whatever, what I would say to that as well is that try it because you will get back more than what you give. And for sure, I've got back and received way more than I could ever give any of these people that I've met along the way. Jazz, will you tell me the third and final rule that you've broken, please? Yes, the third rule that I've broken is don't talk to strangers. And this is a rule that I remember being put into our minds in secondary, uh, no, primary school. And I don't know if this was just me or if this was like across the UK, but we had these pencils at primary school that had like ingrained into them, don't talk to strangers. And yeah, I found one a couple of years ago, like in a drawer, like with some old books or whatever. And I was like, wow, what a message to be like, giving our little kids and I I, of course I understand it of course but yeah it's one that I've definitely gone on to break in a big way because talking to strangers is like my favorite thing to do ever (laughs) and I guess that's the central purpose of Worldwide Tribe definitely and most recently the way that that has kind of manifested itself it has over the years in, in different ways um through films and my writing and photography and arts workshops and things but most recently we have also um, released this podcast um, which I've loved doing because it gives me a really good excuse and reason to be talking to strangers and and really amplifying the voices of strangers um, or people that you know I don't know or that might look or feel or have a very different background to the listener And I guess the idea is to make strangers be less far away from us, less strange Mm. to us, right? Um, And that I really, really enjoyed is is providing a platform for those incredible stories. And in this five years of meeting, I'm assuming now thousands of inverted commas strangers, what has it taught you about humanity? Big question. (laughs) (laughs) So many things, so many things, and I'm constantly learning new things. But I guess the common theme is that although we're all different and that is a beautiful celebration of our differences and the things that are interesting and new um, when we meet new people, actually underneath those kind of surface-level differences what when it comes down to what we want and need as human beings actually we are all human and we have those needs are the same right um so i don't know if i explained that very well you because totally it, did. And what do you, you think kind of, those needs are so and those needs it comes down to the same things over and over again it's like you know we need it's maslow's hierarchy just shelter safety food security knowing where our next meal is coming from and but i think that safety is is the key one here to talk about um because yeah i, I see the value um, and importance in that and my little brothers have really shown me that that coming to the UK you know there's four of them now four foster brothers the newest one is very very new Um, I don't know if we have a chance to even talk about him Um, but yeah he literally the first one Mares came in 2015 then the other two one four years ago one two years ago and this week um, my mum and dad have taken on the fourth boy I keep thinking that will be the last one but <laughs> um, and yeah I went to go and see him yesterday he's only 13 he's just arrived in England um but yeah I can't remember what's going on with that oh yeah so they they've taught me that the importance of a safe and secure environment is just absolutely transformative because you know um one of my brothers he was suffering at the beginning when he first arrived from panic attacks they've all got a lot of they've been through a lot of trauma PTSD but actually the 
environment created by my mum and dad in a very kind of routine home where you get up and you go to school and like everyone has dinner together in the evening and you have a loving environment that is completely it transforms you us as people and having that safe um, foundation is really really key Mm. And will you talk to me a bit more about the kind of social connections or the importance of that that you noticed through talking to strangers and through visiting the camps? What do you mean, social connections? I guess I mean the power of people. Yeah, I, I, I think if um, I'm thinking of the same thing, like the way that people kind of coordinated themselves or or um, formed community in the camps or or continue to is really really incredible so when you take away all of the things that like we have like a house or you know stuff um, that underneath all of that you can't take away the connection and community that people form together right and um, I really learned in Calais especially that Lots of people in the camp wanted what we have here in the UK. They wanted a house and a job and security and stability. But actually, here in the UK, many of us yearn for what they had in abundance in the camp, which was a sense of community and support of one another and real love for one another. And I saw that in so many ways, like even when we were doing distribution of food, for example, like if... I don't I don't like to share food and I couldn't believe how many people, you know, you'd give whatever it was a piece of bread or whatever and they'd want to give half of it back to you and be like I'll share it with me sister and I'd be like no it's for you yeah (laughs) yeah it was that was really amazing to me and you saw it amongst groups of people as well that you know if one person was leaving then the group would be leaving or they would really support each other and it was a way it was a, a hospitality you know inviting people into their homes or tents or whatever it was but also a community where they really looked out for each other that I I didn't recognise that was new to me um, and that, yeah, I feel in London is very different. <laughs> Jazz, will you round this all off by telling me the one rule that you will never break? Yes, this is a difficult one to put into words, but I think it comes down to being respectful. Respectful of our differences, respectful of each other, listening to each other. Um, maybe it sounds obvious, but yeah, there that's the key rule that is underpins everything that I'm doing. Do you ever find that difficult? So I'm assuming you still know people from your kind of London life pre-2015. Do you ever find it, I'm projecting here, but do you ever find it hard to go back to those old circles and be surrounded by people that aren't aware or, or are ignorant? Yeah, I could answer that in two ways. So first, I definitely found it hard when I realised that I had changed. So when I went to Calais and I started doing this work and then I remember it was the first Christmas that like we have a Christmas routine where on uh, Christmas Eve we all go to like the Weatherspoons in our hometown and it's like pretty grim but we all go there and it's fun and then on Christmas Day we have family day obviously and I remember that Christmas of 2015 I did the same thing that I do every year and it was you know same as always same people celebration a nice thing but I just felt like I've I'm different now I'm different I've got this new information swirling around in my head this new stories and people and I I couldn't figure out how to place that new information into my old life and I didn't it wasn't anyone in particular you know all of those people it's not that all of the people around me my family it's not their fault that you know they didn't understand what I was had experienced Um, but I did find that really difficult Um, at first um, how to kind of put these two worlds into one reality Um, but slowly over time I've learned to to balance that out and to realise that you know even living here in London in what is like in comparison complete abundance that's not taking away from anyone and those things can coexist. Um, And was that quite a difficult uh, journey for you personally? So basically being able to find respect for yourself and your own privilege 
was that possible? Like, how did you get there yeah. to a place where you're like, oh, I don't need to go and stay in Calais for the entire time? Exactly. And it's all right if I go out on a night out and have a good time. Do you know what I mean? Because at first that was difficult for me on that Christmas Eve. I was like, what? This, I can't, how can I be here doing this and like and how do you shots manage of tequila that? when, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that I just, that that naturally over time like mellowed out a little bit and I realised that like all of those things happening in exist that all of them existing alongside each other that's the world that we live in mm. right and and lots of people I guess you know live in cities where maybe they've actually grown up for example um, in Cape Town or in uh, cities where there's a big disparity between rich and poor I mean in London too but um, yeah that it's kind of in your face and you you learn that life that does exist these massive contradictions um, and that all you can do is channel that into action and so for me it's been about taking that feeling and understanding that yeah it doesn't feel right doesn't sit right like this isn't a world that I want to live in where it's normal for that to be the case where it's normal that we are walking past people on the street like lying in a sleeping bag or begging for change like that's not normal to me and I don't want it to be but it is the world that we live in right now so how am I going to take that feeling and channel it into action what is it that I can do and um, what can we do? And I'm not saying you have to be the oracle, but how can we join your tribe? Well, there's loads of ways. I mean, for a start, it's the easiest way is to get involved and connected on social media. So um, at the Worldwide Tribe on Instagram and the Worldwide Tribe on Facebook. That's where we kind of share stories and information on a daily basis. And I think that's a good way to start as well, to learn, to open your mind to what's going on for refugees in different countries, why people are fleeing, um, learning and education, I think, and educating yourself is a really good starting point. Um, and then there are, you know, degrees of how you can get involved. You can donate as well financially, but also stuff. Um, help Refugees Choose Love. They're an amazing organisation that take physical donations. Indigo Volunteers is an amazing um, partner of ours who place volunteers with different needs in different um placement so depending on the amount of time you've got the skills that you've got um so if you actually actively want to go and donate check out indigo volunteers but i think also sharing these stories that you are learning that you are reading about having these conversations um with the people around you people that maybe do think differently to you um that's also really really key and important so there's lots of things and ways um but yeah also I would say listen to the Worldwide Tribe podcast because the stories on there are incredible and it's difficult to listen to those and uh not be um oh, I mean maybe I'm biased but you're not, not be affected you're by absolutely <laughs> not um yeah I mean before you came on I was listening to the podcast with your brother Mez yes. and I don't know how anyone could listen to that and not be moved and not have their worldview shifted he's pretty incredible isn't yeah. he <laughs> as are you thank you Jazz for spending your time with us today and please all go and join the worldwide tribe yeah <laughs> <laughs>